it absolutely was awful. Um, my parents had to do a restructured bankruptcy. I mean, we almost tanked as a company. I went away from the farm for about two years. Um, talk about being stressed. We had helicopters mm. flying over this little place from King Five. We oh, had man. I had a nervous eye twitch. I kid you not. I mean, it was it was nuts. This is the Real Food Real People podcast. What's it like to start a small farm from virtually nothing? Well, David Lukens knows he did it. He and his family. And we talk with him this week on the Real Food, Real People podcast. In fact, he talks about some incredibly difficult times to make it all work. Now he has a brand that's recognized around the Pacific Northwest, Grace Harbor Farms. He'll tell about the real start of the farm and how things are going now, plus share a lot of good wisdom along the way. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. You're going to enjoy this conversation with David Lukens out in Custer, Washington at Grace Harbor Farms. I do want to thank our sponsors, including the Dairy Farmers of Washington. This is just wrapping up June, which is Dairy Month. And so they've been doing a lot of special stuff for Dairy Month, including you can get a virtual farm tour on their website, wadairy.org. So check that out. Again, wadairy.org. Uh, if you want to learn more about what a real dairy in Washington looks like, how farmers care for their animals, their land, the community around them, lots of great stuff. Again, the Dairy Farmers of Washington, wadairy.org. Go check it out. Mana Insurance Group supporting the podcast as well. Jen uh, generously donating to uh, help us do what we do and share these real stories. You know, they insure a lot of different folks, including farms, including individuals, auto, home, a lot of different products that you need, you know, farm, life, etc. cetera. Uh, I work with them. That's where I do my insurance. The company was started by a classmate of mine from high school. Great guy. Um, the agent was that I work with who works for my classmate was a roommate of mine at one point. I mean, these, these folks are family, so I know them. They're great folks, and I want you to check out uh, Mana Insurance Group. Uh, they're available at manainsurancegroup.com, and they have locations in Washington, Arizona, and California. Also, Washington Red Raspberry supporting the podcast with a, a generous donation to make these conversations accessible and available to hear from real farmers in Washington State, as well as Williams, powering your clean energy future uh, and supporting the podcast with a community grant as well. So here we go. We go to Custer, where we talk with David Lukens at Grace Harbor Farms. So what kind of a farm are you like how how would you classify grace harbor farms that's a great question um so we started out as a goat dairy uh then we brought in cows uh we've got seven glorious acres so as soon as you say the word cow it's too small um we're still a grade a goat dairy to this day so we actually had a couple years where we didn't hold the dairy license and we didn't have any animals on site but we we got uh, licensed and going again um, end of 2019, I believe it was. And um, so we're maintaining the dairy, we're maintaining the farm, and we're diversifying. So it's a long answer to say we're a small dairy and a natural food company. I've got uh, microgreens growing here on site that we just launched recently. Um, my goal is to diversify and feed people. And so, you know, it doesn't specifically need to be goats or cows. It can it can be more things than that. So to go back just a second, yeah. um, you said you didn't have a license for a couple of years. What does that mean? You have to have a license to have a goat dairy? You have to have a license to milk an animal and sell that milk. 
um, legally, yeah. So you need a grade A certification from the Washington State Department of Agriculture. Um, and then you basically can sell to a processor or then you have to get a processing license and process yourself. Um, so we have always tried to do uh, vertical integration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ever since my dad and stepmom, Grace, started this, um, part of our business model was, and to be totally honest with you, part of the business model was forced because we were too poor and too small to, you know, sell to a bigger processor and make money at that. So we got the grade A dairy license for the goats. We got the processing license. Um, and then we started delivering our own product. Um, and we couldn't afford to set it on a distribution truck. So my dad would get up at three in the morning and go down and I'd go milk goats. And then we, you know, brought in cows and that was the deal. So literally, you know, it's the American dream. Um, it's hard. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Trust me, we've had all those, a lot of stress, a lot of family stress at times. Um, but you know, you work your, your butt off for 10 or 15 or 20 years to become a quote unquote overnight success. So here we are. (laughs) And that's the way it often appears to the public, right? It's like, boom, where did they come from? Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, nobody knows who you are when you're small and maybe your neighbor is a handful of people, whatever. But you know, now we're down in the greater Puget Sound area. We're filing to go across state lines. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're doing the things that people now are noticing us, right? We've mm. got uh, tens of thousands of people following us on social media now. And, um, you know, it's just a small little family operation, but it's taken 20 years to grow into a, a decent little business and a cool little farm and then have a, a great team of people. So you have to file to go across state lines. Too. It's just more and more licenses and, yep. and think, you know, approvals you have to get to to sell your products exactly yeah, especially for dairy Dairy's hard um I, I understand why they did that uh dairy is a perfect bed of bacteria growth good or bad right? right so a lot of people used to get sick off of dairy products before they understood the science of what's happening you know cooling milk down uh, fast and efficiently all that good stuff uh, pasteurization's a, a big one um we, we had a stint of raw milk back in the day, too. We had people get sick off our product in the early 2000s. It was awful, right? So you, you mm. got to get your, your business model um, set up properly so that it's safe for everybody and it's, it's a solid business model. Um, so anyway, long story short, there's a lot of licenses. There's a lot of food science to that. Um, I had to get certified in FISMA, which is the new Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, and that was, I think, in 2018 I got certified in that, you know, so you... You, you basically have a crash course in food science. So most of this licensing stuff has to do with food safety? Pretty much all of it, I mean, to be honest with you, because there's certain reasons why you, you do something, but at the end of the day, it really is because you, you're making edible food, right? During my FISMA certification, they even talked about dog food, and the dog food world has to have basically the same level of food safety mm. because people eat dog food. So there you go. Like on purpose or like kids getting into the dog food? Probably both, unfortunately. <laughs> Some, you know, one of our instructors did Crazy. say, you know, there's a lot of people on fixed incomes that go buy dog food and help supplement their, their needs. Unreal. Yeah. In a world where we have so much food, there's so much food waste. Yep. There's so many producers, folks like yourself and so many others, yep. and people are still in that situation. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it makes you wonder, like... I guess I was going to say something about the food system, but it's bigger than the food system, right? Absolutely. Yeah, the food system itself is, I mean, no system's ever perfect, right? Yeah. But uh, 
And there's a lot of good, there's a lot of great places out there. Some of, if we ever have shrink, anything that's close to pull date, we, we donate it for that very reason. You know, there's people that rather than dump it in the field or give it to the chickens or whatever, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that can use it, whether they're homeless or whether they're low income or whatever it is. And that's a, honestly, that's part of the food systems, food waste problem, right? Is you have to have dates and it's a food safety thing. Yep. But at the same time, for liability's sake, you probably have to have those dates quite a bit earlier than they actually need to be. Yeah. Just yeah. to make sure. Yep. Generally speaking, that's absolutely correct. There's a lot of food that goes way past pull date. Um, but, you know, we're so, <laughs> our Americanized kind of diets and, and habits are so driven by, oh, well, it's past pull date, I better throw it away. Right. Yeah. So we actually. Well, and the lit- our litigious society, if you have that too far out yep. and somebody gets sick and it's within the pull date, then yep. you're. Likely to get sued? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Which is sad, but true. You talked about that in the past, dealing with raw milk and people getting sick. And first off, what's the deal with the whole raw milk thing? Lots of people have different views on that. Some people are like, no way, no one should ever be doing that. It's super dangerous. Other people are saying, you've got to have raw milk. It's, It's so much better for you. It gives you all these benefits. What's the truth about raw milk? Oh, I, I like to get nerdy on milk, so let's go. Um, so raw milk basically <laughs> is the way most dairy was consumed in the early 1900s into the, you know, I think it was mid-1900s when pasteurization was kind of adopted. Um, if memory serves me, it's Louis Pasteur um, from France, I want to say, was the uh, was the scientist behind it and kind of inventor. Um, our uh, USDA and specifically Washington State Department of Agriculture has always adopted kind of the, the PMO. It's called the Pasteurized Milk Ordinance. It's updated every so many years, and it all has to do with food science as well as, um, you know, recalls and sick, you know, people and all the stuff behind that. So raw milk in its truest form is straight out of the animal. It's a raw product. Um, generally speaking, if you grew up as a farm kid, you're probably fine to consume that. In my opinion, and strictly my opinion, um, where you see a lot of issues is that farming now is about, what, 1% of the population? And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I are similar in the fact that we grew up in a farming community. We, you know, yeah. may or, well, I don't know if you've milked animals or not, but... Um, Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's in, manure's in the air, you're, you're ingesting, you know... You're all exposed s- to a lot of bacteria and other pathogens. Yeah, all sorts of stuff, yeah. So, most of the farm kids grew up drinking raw milk, no big deal. As soon as you bring in an immune system that hasn't, you know, dealt with those different bacterias, your risks go up. Um, so, we've had, um, I think it was three kids get sick off of our raw milk in Mm. early 2000s down in the Seattle area. Even though we had a warning label on the product that everything was up to snuff with the state, everything was in order. Um, And it says, you know, for don't feed to kids or elderly people because you're potentially immunocompromised. Right. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Somewhere, somehow, you as the dairy producer messed up because there was enough bacteria. In our case, it was E. coli 015787, which can be very serious. Um, thankfully, everybody fully recovered, but it absolutely was awful. Um, my parents had to do a restructure bankruptcy. I mean, we almost tanked as a company. I went away from the farm for about two years. Um, talk about being stressed. We had helicopters flying over this little place from King five. We had, I had a nervous eye twitch. I kid you not. I mean, it was, it was nuts. Um, anyway, thank the Lord. We recovered as a family, as a company and all the kids recovered. They had no lasting effects. But like I said, at the end of the day, we screwed up. We don't know how. 
So I've come full circle to believe that pasteurization is smart for the majority of people. Um, now, within pasteurization, there's three, there's three kinds in, for, for milk specifically. There's mm-hmm. vat pasteurization, which is lowest temperature and longest time. So you hold milk at a minimum of 145 degrees for 30 minutes. That's what we do. Um, there's HTST, which is high temperature, short time. Um, if memory serves me, it's like 161 for 15 seconds or somewhere close to that. And then there's UHT, which is ultra high temp. That's normally where you get your shelf-stable milks because it's completely aseptically filled until you open that product and it's, uh, you know, basically... Expose it to air again. Exactly, exactly. So those are the three, three kinds. Um, and then within that, the last nerdy thing I'll say about dairy is there's different ways of um, processing dairy, right? So there's the basic pasteurization differences. There's also homogenization as well as separation. So homogenizing will take that fat, those fat globs and they'll push it through a high-pressure system, break up those fat globs so they don't float back to the surface. And when you say globs, you mean more like on the microscopic level. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Not like you have big chunks of fat in here. Correct, yeah. <laughs> well, and we do, right? I mean, to be honest with you, we have a cream top product. There is bigger uh, chunk fats that all kind of collect at the top. Um uh, in the early years, we, we were too poor for a homogenizer or a separator. Um, so it's just kind of how we built the business. And then thankfully fat is back, you know, full yeah. fat milk is back, which is great. It's been a great divine timing for us. Um, and then lastly, separation is you pull the cream out. So what people don't usually know about whole milk at the store is that whole milk isn't truly whole milk. It's a government standard at 3.25% butter fat, um, where depending on your herd of cows, you're more you're closer to 4 to 4.5% butter fat uh, naturally from the animal. And so we um, were one of two farms here local that I know of that do a, a true full fat, un, non-homogenized product that's uh, you know truly about a 4 to 4.5% butter fat. Now, you started these, I mean, you were doing raw milk and then not homogenizing even once you were starting to pasteurize, all these things, just because that's all you could afford. Now that's become much more, I I guess, embraced by at least certain segments of society, people realizing benefits there. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, you, you know, why do you do it? You know, uh, what, what, what's, you know, what, what's the reason now that you're continuing, yeah. you know, not homogenizing, doing cream top yeah. milk, you know, vat pasteurization, the slow method, what difference does it make for you? The benefits I think are there based off of our experience. Um, we've gotten several phone calls and emails of people that had prior trouble ingesting or digesting dairy products. Mm. Then they would cheat, and they. We had one lady call, and she said, "I cheated on my diet. I love uh, milk and yogurt, and I bought your yogurt, and it didn't bother me. And mm. then I bought some milk of yours, and it didn't bother me. What the heck are you guys doing? This doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever." Yeah. So we basically pinpointed it down to uh, two potential benefits: either the breed of animals. There's there's uh, some discussion between A1 and A2 proteins in milk, um, and that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down if you want. So is that like Jerseys versus Holsteins kind of thing? They produce different kinds of the, fats? The short answer is yes. The, the A1 and A2 protein can be in, in diff- lots of different breeds, but it really it's, uh, I think it's a genome-type test that you have to do, and you actually have to take a hair sample and send it to mm-hmm. a lab to see if the animal is... Um, A1, A2, and potentially there's an A3 protein out there now, which is mm. kind of a mutation. 
Um, but that said, so that's potentially one benefit. The second one is how you actually process the milk, right? So minimally processed. Um, when I took a cheese class in the early years, we had Mark Bates, who used to be an instructor at um, WSU, I believe. And he said, he said, this is my personal opinion, but when you look at the milk on a microscopic level and you see how it looks under high processing, homogenization, separation, and high temp pasteurization, it looks different than milk that's minimally processed. So, you know, I'm no crazy food scientist, but based off of our experience and our customer base and what we as a family have consumed ourselves, that's why we're sticking with what we do, right? I mean, we built a foundation and, and we stay true to that. What other benefits does it bring then? Like um, flavor? It can bring flavor. Other health benefits? Potentially, um, and especially when you get into the cultured world. You know, we try to do cultured products as uh, kind of our main bread and butter, for lack of a better term. So yogurt, kefir, um, cultured buttermilk is kind of our three main categories of products that we, we produce right now in the dairy world that... Uh, you know, it benefits the digestive tract, benefits your stomach bacteria, all sorts of good stuff. Um, so, I mean, what 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 do you read online? What's true and what's not? I'm I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, if it if you normally have issues with dairy products and you can eat ours, I think we're doing something right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned bacteria in it. So, are you actually suggesting that some of these benefits? Or, for instance, gut health could be because there's more bacteria. Yep, yep. And that goes back to the pasteurization thing, right? Uh, Milk in in itself is a great foundation um, for bacteria, and that could be good bacteria or bad, right? So we do have an incubation room to make yogurt where we truly will pasteurize it, and we'll cool it down, and then we add good bacteria, yogurt starter, um, and then we have to actually grow that bacteria for, you know, like 20 hours to make sure that it's a fully set up yogurt. And so when you actually see that process take place, you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense how mishandled raw milk can make people sick. And yet the bacteria that is around us and we're ingesting all the time. And I think the science and the, uh, even society's understanding of gut health is evolving too. People are realizing I need the right balance of bacteria in my stomach. You know, for so long, oh, yeah. it, it's been like no bacteria. Bacteria is bad. Right. Antibacterial everything. Yeah. We we're just starting to kind of come away from that as people are like, maybe bacteria is like a normal part of life, which it is. You can never get rid of Absolutely. bacteria. Then COVID hit and everyone's into, you know, sanitizing everything again and kind of nervous about stuff. Yep. I don't know when that comes back around where people are just like, hey, bacteria is life. (laughs) Um, It's not necessarily bad for my body. I don't know either. Um, And people that don't or can't regularly consume dairy, you're seeing like uh, probiotic pills, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. for that very reason, there's... There's a lot of evidence that shows it's good for you. You need it for your, your innards to work properly, right? Yeah. So, um, Is stuff that's minimally processed like yours still safe, though? Yep, it is. Um, so pasteurization in itself, there's uh, the state has updated everything throughout the years. So they actually bumped up the temperature requirements for vat pasteurization. Um, I don't remember what, what year it was. But essentially the main two bacteria that we make sure that are killed through pasteurization is listeria and E. coli. Those are the two that can be really harmful to humans. Um, so what's left behind? You still do have some bacteria left behind, some enzymes. I mean, a lot of good stuff. Um, and then, of course, if you're adding, if you're making 
you know, yogurt or kefir or anything cultured for that matter, even cheese, you're adding bacteria, you're adding, you know, stuff that grows. And so it's, it's good for you, definitely. Um, and it's, it's absolutely safe. It just depends on your personal preference. Ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I use the analogy a lot of times that uh, milk is similar to beer. So back in the old days, we used to have the main beer companies like, you know, Budweiser. Mm. Well, fast forward to modern day, we've got so many different kinds of beers now. Things that are made differently have different flavors, different textures, you know, all sorts of stuff. And milk's very similar to that. We've had just kind of big processing, um, not as many artisan places as we do these days. Um, and so now we're seeing a lot of different variations, a lot of, you know, European inspired things, uh, different cultural, you know, foods. And that's not just dairy, of course, but you're definitely seeing it in the dairy world. It's crazy how that evolves and really comes back in some ways to practices of times past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They say uh, everything old again is new again, right? And so, yeah, we're definitely seeing that cycle. And the point that you make, too, is there's a lot more options for people. So they can choose what they want to buy and what they want to consume. And maybe some person is okay with this, but another person isn't, so they have a choice. Absolutely. And there's more and more people, which is a great thing when you grow food or make food, right? So you might, you know, not like the way I make yogurt. That's fine. You know, I got enough people that buy enough yogurt to pay the bills and give me a a reasonable life. Um, But every day there's more people being, being born. So as long as we do uh, a good job, we make good food. My customer base is potentially growing every day. So where does your milk come from? You guys milk your own goats? Yep. We have goats here. We milk a small herd. And then we also, um, there's been two goat families. So Ashton, who you just interviewed recently, she's just up mm-hmm. and running. We, we got first, uh, first milk from her last week, which was awesome. Um, and then the, the Glunt family at Willow Acres, they just, uh, they're semi-retiring. So they're kind of, they're selling down, they're getting ready, ready to move. Um, but we've worked with them for goodness, probably 15 years. They were the first, actually no more than that, because they were the first family that we bought goats from in 99. So, and then uh, they moved up to Whatcom County, I think in early 2000s. So we've, we've worked with them now for about 15 years in Whatcom County. Um, and so it's kind of sad to see them, sad to see them go. They've been great people to work with, but. So yeah. are those the folks that Ashton is kind of sort of taking over for? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That w- we have to follow up on that story. Cause like you said, we had Ashton on the podcast recently yep. and she said there, you know, she was trying to figure out what to do. Her parents got out of the cow dairy. Yep. Um, but she wanted to keep farming right. and so she decided goat farming started as a joke and then she got serious. I think after she talked with you about it yeah, yeah. and you hooked her up with these folks that were kind of phasing out. Yeah. And at that point, so talk about funny divine timing at that point, I didn't know that they were phasing out. So Ashton mm. approached me, um, her and her family used to go to church with my uh, my dad and stepmom before they moved, and so we kind of had that disconnection. We're young, you know, the thirty-something-year-old up-and-coming farmers that are trying to make a living and figure out what's next, right? Yeah. So she she came down and just kind of wanted to visit and see what was going on around here, and she told me about the transition that her parents were making, and you know, and. She's like, you know, what, what kind of needs do you guys have? I've just thrown feelers out everywhere to try to figure out what's next, you know. And, of course, this is just kind of verbatim. It's not totally accurate. But the gist of it was, you know, hey, I, 
I don't have anything right now, but long-term, I mean, I need more goat milk. We can only milk so many kind of here on site. And um, I'm focused on my production plant. And I, you know, I've got this problem in the winter when we're, we're out of goat milk, basically. Um, and so she got her thinking and she started kind of thinking, joking about it and everything. And then several months go by and we've been staying in contact and the, the Glunt family pulled me aside when I was over there one morning and they said, Hey, you know, this is getting too, too hard for us. We're, we need to retire. Mm. We're going to sell everything here. Um, we'll give you a first option if you want to take it over, but, um, I don't know if that's feasible for you. And that was just a couple of months after I just bought the farm from my parents. And so I'm like, Ooh, I can't, you know, it's not, not <laughs> yeah. the right timing for me. Yeah. Um, and so sure enough, Ashton popped in my head. So I called her probably within a matter of 20 minutes and said, Hey, I need to connect you with the Glunt family. And the rest as they say, they say is history, right? So she's, she bought the majority of their herd. Um, they're great, great, great lines of goats. The, they've taken so much pride in them over the years. And um, so Ashen converted, um, struck a deal with her parents to keep the, you know, the farm going on a different scale, of course. Yep. And uh, so it's taken probably about five or six months for her to get everything kind of converted over up and running. But she got licensed. She got 100%. So good honor for that. That's awesome. And um, yeah. So it's 100% on her what inspection? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Good job, Ashton. That's right. I yep. had not heard that. <laughs> I know. Post uh, interview, kudos back to her. That's right. Yep. Um, and for her doing that, I, I'm trying to remember all the things she she was explaining that goats are a lot more seasonal yep. in their production. And you just mentioned that too, where you have a, a situation in the winter time when there's a lot less goat milk available. Yep. Is she able to like shift her herd to produce more at that time of year or what's she going to be able to do to help with that? Yeah, that's part of the, the hope. Um, she's going to try. It's going to take time, like everything, right? But she's going to try to stagger the breeding as much as she can and see if we can get a, a little bit more of a supply in the winter. Um, and, you know, the, realistically, you can only mess with some of that so much. But the reality is, is there's definitely a need. So we'll explore that and see, you know, what we can do to fix that. But majority of goat, goat, big goat dairies are in Oregon and California. And so most of the market up here goes almost completely dry. And so we hmm. see our average sales every week almost double in the, uh, in the winter months, which is kind hmm. of frustrating and kind of crazy, but it just kind of is what it is. Go dry, meaning the goats stop producing for a time. Yeah, that's correct. And yeah. they do it all kind of sort of at the same time versus a dairy cow, which can go fresh or dry kind of at any time of the year and the farmer just plans it to keep production steady. Exactly. Yeah. Goats are kind of in the same family as deer. So they go into rutting season. And so you have main kidding season in the spring and then they kind of start naturally drying up in the, the dark months um, for breeding. And so that's, you know, there's, there's some animals that can milk through no problem. Um, but majority of it is, has to do with breed, genetic lines, a lot goes into it. I mean, honestly, every kind of farming is so fascinating to me, you know? Um, so you, you look at the people that are really good at something and from the outside looking in, it's like, oh yeah, good on them. Well, when you start figuring out what they actually do, it's crazy. So, you know, I, I've been in the goat world long enough to really appreciate what some of these people do. I mean, dairy world in general, to be honest, what good mm -hmm. dairy farmers do is amazing. Um, and also know my limitations. So I'm going to focus on what I'm good at, which is kind of the, the food side, natural, um, you know, naturally comes to me, processing, efficiencies, um, customer service, all that 
that good stuff. I, I like that side. That's one of the conversations I had with Ashton is I said, look, I need this. I could do it, but I know I'm not going to be as good at it as you. And so if you can make it work, I'm, I'm so happy to partner up with you and, you know, have you supply the, the needed goat milk that we can't do ourselves. So how did your family get into goat milk? To begin with, it sounds like you started with goats yeah. and then did some cows, and now you're back to all goats. Uh, correct, yeah, here on site, yes, all goats. Uh, we still have cow products. Um, we work with two cow dairies, and but we don't have any ownership in cows or anything anymore. Right. Um, and <laughs> so, <laughs> the great story on this is my stepmom Grace was pretty convinced that when Y2K hit, mm. the world was going to slow down quite a lot. Um, I think she was a little early. She didn't see COVID coming, <laughs> but regardless, that's how yeah, real I, that's just occurring to me now as you explain that COVID is much more of our Y2K Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> than our Y2K was. But the reality, right. I mean, and we never became like crazy preppers or anything. No, and no offense if you guys are, <laughs> um, but reality is, is we are so conditioned to just-in-time inventory, whether that's food, clothing, transportation, all that, right? Yep. Just recently, we saw gas gas shortages in some other states and all that sort of stuff. Right. So Y2K, she was worried about, um, she had some people that were in computer world and said, look, this if this does crash computers, power grids can go down, all that sort of stuff can go down. And, you know, we're trying to make sure everything's good to go. But in reality is, you know, if something does go down, there might be days, weeks, or possibly months when there's shortages of stuff. Well, back then, it's like, okay, yeah, right. Nothing really happened. Well, look what happened during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're going, oh yeah, wow, food system really is short supply. For the first uh, couple of weeks of COVID, we got a phone call from our local Safeway, and they said, we can't even get our own Safeway brand buttermilk. Can we buy a bunch from you guys? And that was the moment where I went, okay, we have some serious supply chain problems happening in the country. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that was a side trail. So what great opportunity for you guys, a, right? Wonderful. A wonderful, our market share grew. Um, my heart goes out to the restaurants and the gym owners that oh, a man. lot of those guys struggled, but man, for us, um, we definitely saw growth in customer base and people trying our product. We worked some really long days and to my knowledge, we never missed a single order. So mm. that was awesome. Um, but that's, that's truly what started, started the farm was the Y2K thing um, and, and my stepmom getting goats. And she started kind of pioneer woman with some goat milk. She made some soap. She made some cheese. Um, you know, we had goat milk for drinking, um, all that good stuff. And, you know, so that's truly, I say that with the Grace Harbor Farm started by accident. Um, and it kind of did, hmm. you know. So that's the basis of the, the start of it. And here you are, how many years later, in terms of, I guess, you started from essentially nothing, just probably a handful of goats milking them in the backyard kind of thing. That's correct. We actually started, uh, Grace had a bed and breakfast up on Drayton Harbor on a quarter acre. So we started, I think it was with three or four goats, and um, the quarter acre wasn't big enough, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so we actually did have a mini grade A dairy up there and a mini creamery. Everything got licensed and was good to go. And so they did farmer's markets, and they did some goat cheese and stuff like that. Um, I used to go milk in the mornings on the weekends when I was up there because I was um, – 
you know, going up and visiting my dad and, and all that. I was 13, I think, at the time. So doing farm chores up there, um, living with my mom on Lummy Island. We had chickens and all sorts of little stuff out there. Um, so it's always been a fun, you know, childhood. Teaches you a lot of good stuff that you don't realize till you're older. But uh, once we grew out of the, uh, you know, quarter acre, um, we came over here where we currently are on Bridgeville Linden Road in Custer. And so grew the, the farm here, had about 70 goats, if memory serves me right, at our peak here. Um, and then we had four or five cows here on site. And that's kind of when we had to shift our business model. Is there farming in your family background farther back than that? It is, yeah, actually. And that's something I didn't really realize until this last year, that my dad grew up here in Custer um, on his grandfather's farm, living with his mother and his brothers. And he used to go milk in the mornings. And so they had 35, 40 cows. Um, and so looking back on it, it's kind of funny because, you know, there was a, like his, his parents, my, my grandparents, they, they weren't quote unquote farmers. Um, but my great grand grandpa was, you know, and then my dad helped in that. And then my dad had a hiatus away, ran a couple different companies and stuff, and then started this thing. And so it's like, man, you know, looking back at the family history, it's, it's in the blood, I guess. Um, yeah. so it's been kind of neat just to take this place over last year. And it's literally about two, three miles from grandpa's or great grandpa's old farm. What does it feel like to do that, to carry on the family legacy? You know, it's, it's ask me on different days. I'll give you a different answer. Um, <laughs> okay. What are the different answers? <laughs> normally it's awesome. It really is. A, yeah. We all want a purpose. We all want to uh, help people. Um, money, at least, especially in the food world is certificates of appreciation. Mm -hmm. People appreciate what you do. You give a good product, you get these little certificates, you know, um, there's some days though, man, you get a ton of stress. I mean, there is a lot of stress in general. Um, but overall it's, it's great. Stress. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? What's stressing you out? Um, different business problems at different times. Um, personnel, there's always stress with team members, employees, you know, people's schedules, uh, people that don't show up for work or people that are out sick. Um, that's the same sort of thing with COVID, right? You had to take extra precautions. If somebody had a sniffle, they need to stay home and go get tested type of a deal. Yeah. That's, that's one whole ball of stress. Um, second to that, you're talking, uh, quality product, you're feeding people if there's ever an issue, right? I mean, when we had our raw milk issue, that was crazy stress. Thankfully, our business model, at least from what I've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, we've got a good business model, we've got good practices, so the stress is less in that area. Um, but, you know, sometimes you have product that uh, doesn't make pull date for some reason, so you need to credit that store. You know, things happen in the food chain. I don't know how long my case of milk or yogurt sits on the receiving dock in 80-degree heat, mm. right? That can shorten shelf life in itself. If the receiver's out on break, we've got a, 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 a chain of stores that I will leave unnamed. They're, they have short receiving hours, and when the receiver's on break, you literally sit there and just wait. They won't, they, they don't have anybody come cover you. And it's like, guys, your, your model is broken. You, we need good food, you know, practices for everybody here. Everything else can be just right. But because of what happens on the dock where the truck pulls up to unload the, you know, yep. cases of food, yep. it can all fall apart there. Absolutely. You know, and we've all had it where you stop at the store, um, you know, you get stuck in traffic, 
your car breaks down, something happens when your groceries are stuck in the hot car, you know? So there's a lot of issues that can absolutely develop. Um, so thankfully, minimal stress on the food safety side, which I appreciate. And then you just talk about uh, legacy financial stress, you know, um, that is more up to me, thankfully, but there's, there's some of that, you know, you got, you got your signature on some big loans and mm-hmm. most farms these days, they run a lot of cash flow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of people look, look at those numbers and think, wow, that farm is huge. Yeah. They just see the in and they don't see the out as far as where the money goes. Absolutely. You see those pretty tractors in the field. You know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in each tractor, not to mention the implements, you know, not to mention the, the Grace Harbor delivery trucks you see running, you know, or the shiny stainless steel tanks or the filling line. You know, I just just bought a new filling line yesterday and it's it's a big fat loan, but Ugh. it'll be awesome. Is that just the way farming has to be now? Loans, financing? Some would say yes. I would say it really depends on on how you want to run your business. You know, I mean, we are we're a true example of where we were too poor, um, and with the forced restructuring bankruptcy of my parents, we couldn't we couldn't borrow money as a company. Mm. That's a blessing and a curse, but mostly a blessing. You grow mm. you grow slower. We grew a solid business. It took a lot of time. Um, and so, you know, now I'm going to leverage very, very lightly. Um, you know, I, I want to sleep good at night knowing that if something happened, I can pay everything off and, and go get a quote unquote day job if I need to. Mm-hmm. And so, um, business models are different of course, but I would say our Americanized lifestyle would point towards higher debt than we need. And you're saying you're living proof of that, where you guys were forced to not have as much debt because you had gone through a bankruptcy. Yep, absolutely. Debt and investors is a big dangling carrot. Um, And unfortunately, more often than not, it doesn't end well. You you hear the the stories of, uh, of, you know, the success stories. Mm -hmm. Um, But you, I would say the majority... You know, that's just my guess, but the majority of them are not success stories. They're failure stories, and you got a big mess to clean up. And so, thankfully, we've dodged those bullets. What about all these farms, though? I mean, there's a lot of people that say they just have to do it. I suppose you're saying that you do sometimes, too, because you still, like, you got a new filling line, and you had to finance it. Yeah, and there's truth. that I mean, if I waited longer, I could have paid cash, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's there's that balance. Um, but I would say in most cases, you don't have to do it. You, you have to sacrifice either your personal life or income a little bit and stash that money away. And we're all guilty of we want to go on the, a sweet vacation and yeah. buy an, a big screen TV, you know. And ultimately, we're, we're very consumer-based these days. So um, anyway, I've tried to balance it for sure. You talk about, you know, getting financing, but to the point where you still feel like you could pay it off and go work a day job. How real is that? Do do you worry that you may have to do that someday, that you won't be able to continue this farm? At at this point, no. Um, And again, it's how you structure things. I've, I've, I've been blessed to learn some hard lessons through the early years, through the mistakes of my, my parents. Um, and so, you know, it, it really is, it's the guy in the mirror ultimately. Right. And it's what, what do I want to take on? What do, what's my wife comfortable with all that good stuff? Um, and so I'm really not worried at, uh, having to go get a day job. Um, we've got a great business, great business model and a great team. 
Um, my, my biggest worries right now are finding people to hire. I, honestly, it's been hard to hire the last mm. year or two through COVID. Um, and then also make the business better so that I can keep up with good wages and benefits. Um, a, a lot of the media you see is about farm labor and how they are overworked and underpaid. And I would say 99% of that is a bunch of steaming cow poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it is hard work, farming. Absolutely, yeah. But a lot of people love to work outside. They love to work hard. They love to, you know, seasonal seasonal work too. They love to travel. You get housing. You get, you know, I mean, shoot, if I could easily go travel and work and have some free housing and learn some skills, it's not a bad gig. And then yeah. when you look at pay structures and pay scales, um, we got to keep up with the market. That's just reality. Right. I mean, nobody wants to work for minimum wage or, or under and everybody's claims that farm, you know, farm labor works for under minimum wage. Um, hello, that's illegal. Um, that's not true. So just wipe that whole argument away. So, you know, realistically, um, I, I, and again, I don't don't try to rabbit trail too far, but my my stress is, is more on the actual business operation side. And really, I'm not worried about the business failing. Um, I'm not worried about getting a day job or anything of that sort. Um, some of my fears, to be honest with you, once you're you're successful enough, you're going to have somebody come in and offer you a whole lot of money to try to absorb your business and your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending how tired and, and whatnot I am at that point, I'm, I'm somewhat worried about having to make that decision. But, yeah. you know, it might never happen and, or it might be one of those things where I talk to the wife and say, no, this, you know, we got a good life. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends on a lot of different factors to make that decision. Absolutely. And that's farming in general. There's so many factors. Things are uncontrollable at times. Um, You just literally have to roll with the punches. I think, and my personal philosophy is, there's a reason that a lot of farmers are religious people because (laughs) at the end of the day, the only thing you can do is get on your knees and pray to God that uh, you get a clear answer, a clear choice, and you you just move on. You talk about building the farm and what it would be like to, you know, if you were in that situation someday, sell the farm, what that would be like. And then you also mentioned, you know, sell the brand. Talk about building the brand. How important has that been yeah. to you guys? Because I know the name has become recognizable and that's the whole goal with, you know, right. establishing that public facing brand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something that a lot of farms don't have is they don't go direct to market under their own brand, um, which isn't bad. I, I don't mean to poo-poo on any of that. That's great. If you've got a good good market where you can sell to a, a buyer of some sort, you know, they have the brand. Um, that's totally fine. That With that comes a lot of liability as well, like the recalls and food safety stuff and all that, right? But for us, being vertically integrated, um, the brand is its own uh, kind of a- asset, I would say. Um, and so a lot of places or investors will say you blue sky doesn't mean anything at the end of the day it does it means a lot you look at some of these food companies or brands that have been bought up and now they're owned by a you know a mega corporation or company Um, media branding um, being recognized it's, there's a lot of value in that. And so I know that I recognize that. Um, I don't want to part with that at this time. Um, and so we're, our goal is just to continue to grow the brand, our, our farm, diversify, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't mind being that household name in the Pacific Northwest. That's totally fine with me, you know? 
I'd love to see show people where their food's made and the yeah. the faces behind it because at the end of the day, we all kind of like that. Yeah. At the same time, that would require you to keep growing bigger and bigger. And a lot of what you do, and it sounds like your value system, what you like is being a small farm. And right. that's also probably what your customers, the people who consume your food, like. Yep. How big would you ever get? I don't have a clear answer for that. Um, it's already bigger than we thought it would be, to be honest with you. Um, the initial plan that my dad had in his head was just the seven and seven and a half acres. Um, and it would be him and me and my stepmom. And, you know, that's not a bad life or a bad business model. Um, but what we ran into was the market demanded more. And mm-hmm. the grocery stores don't like it when they order, you know, 10 cases of yogurt and you bring three. Right. I mean, empty shelves are bad for them. They're bad for, for us. We can't supply. Then ultimately they boot you out. Right. So you have to be to a certain size to basically play in that sandbox. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's a balance. Um, you know, what can I do and not sacrifice who we are and how we do it? Um, but also bringing in some other, I mean, Ashton's a prime example of that, right? Bring in a good young farmer that, farms in a way that the, we built the company on and the market wants. Um, and there's, there's many different ways to farm. And so I'm not poo-pooing on any different way, but I'm just saying that if the market wants a specific way, give the market what they want. You know, there's another market that wants a different way, you know, who cares? And so <laughs> my, my goal is to supply the market, to grow the company, to grow the brand, um, and in turn, that will give back to our local community, um, my employees, um, people like Ashton. So that's a very dodgy answer because I just don't know how big yeah. it'll grow. Yeah. As far as having your own brand, and, and I think you kind of touched on this, but you know, there you said a lot of people who don't do that don't want to do that. I think part of that is they just don't know how to, or they're not interested in you know doing branding, which a lot of people think is just putting a logo on something. But a brand is really how people feel about your product or your service or whatever you're providing. Yep. The logo just being one visual representation that triggers their memory to that feeling. Mm. I'm a branding nerd because I've been kind of steeped in this over my professional career. Um, So I think there's one, that's one of the reasons why people don't want to do that. But another reason, at least in the food and farming world would be that liability issue that, that I think you mentioned, because once you're a public facing brand, people know you, they can find where you're at. If they don't like your product, they can come straight to you. There's not a middleman that, you know, you can, they can sue or can provide you a buffer like some big company that buys your stuff and sells it to them. They've got deep pockets. They can weather that. Right. And you guys kind of went through that yep. with the whole raw milk thing years ago. What would you say is, is your, your big fear there with that? Or, or are you comfortable with that kind of liability being kind of out there? Oh, at this point we're comfortable. Um, it's at the end of the day, you, you have to build good systems within the business. Right. And so I think you already touched on that within that brand comes so many details and, and it's almost like building a house. You have to have the foundation to, for that house to be stable. Right. And so from the street, from, you know, you see the brand, you see that house from the street. Um, but there's a whole lot that goes into it to get that house there. Right. And you've got to know what you're doing. 
So that's been the trial and the error through the years. That's, you know, that's why we don't do anything raw anymore. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's why we're also diversifying because we, we want to not just be known for goats or cows. We want to be growing other food or, and or producing other consumable products. And so, you know, what that holds in the future, I don't specifically know. Uh, we just launched some microgreens that we're growing here on site, and that's been great so far, right? But within that, um, I'm taking what I've learned from food safety, food handling. Yeah. Um, I adapted that into, you know, produce, essentially. Um, but then beyond that, you have to figure out how do you market it? How do you package it? You know, what's the legal requirements of that? So there's a lot to being a brand, quote unquote. So again, you know, anybody that wants to go do the thing, I encourage you to do it. But I also, you know, look at those houses and know how many hours of, you know, foundational work goes into that. So talk about the microgreens. Why did you get into that? That's totally different than milk and yogurt. Mm. Totally different. So part of the idea behind that, um, so twofold. So idea number one, um, I have a delivery driver and it was, it was his idea. Mm. He said, you know, Hey, you know what? I've been talking to some of these buyers and produce guys and stuff at the stores. There's a big hole in the market. There's Mm. not, um, not a great consistent supply at times. Um, I think it's something that we could potentially add on. And I said, you know what? I let's look into it. Right. So we ran the numbers. We looked at our capabilities here on site. Um, I I don't have huge capabilities, but what we do have is a, certain amount of space to do a prototype and to get everything going. And, and we, we have, um, idea number two is diversification, right? I'm already running trucks. I already have a profitable company. I've already got routes set up. You go into a grocery store, there's hundreds of thousands of SKUs in that grocery store, right? People go to and from the grocery store all hours of the day they all need to eat. And so if I can supply good food to more people and I can do it here on site. My, my business model is already profitable. I've got very, very low expenses for distributing those products. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's true. If you, you're hauling milk or yogurt or whatever somewhere, yep, it's not a big deal to throw on cases of microgreens. Absolutely. Same truck. Absolutely. So, um, for me, it was just part of you know, trying it out, making sure that we, uh, you know, keep growing that brand and keep supplying people's needs. And if the reality is if we started it and nobody would buy it, it wouldn't be a thing, right? I mean, that's just reality. So, so, so far, how's it going? Both on the growing and producing and packing, delivering, yeah. and then selling. It's been great. I, I'm, I'm naturally an optimist, uh, to be honest with you. I think a, a lot of farmers have to be. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's been as good as I hoped it would be. Um, mm-hmm. Stores have been pretty happy. We've, we've changed a little bit of our harvesting technique and, you know, very, very small issues. But overall, it's been awesome. And having a team member that I can empower and I can say, hey, man, you know, let's work something out. There's incentive here for both of us. That's great, you know, trying to further people's, you know, lives. That's, that's a legacy yeah. that we're, we're building you know, either it's intentional or unintentional. For me, it's intentional. I'm building a legacy and I want the people that come through this, this, you know, these doors to learn, to grow, to develop as much as I can. So 
that's part of it. See, there's a hole in the market for microgreens. I always think, well, microgreens, that's like your kind of farmer's market staple. And there's all kinds of people, you know, with gardens and yeah. small farms doing that kind of a thing. But in some ways, what you're doing is a little bit different than that because you are placing those in actual grocery stores. Correct. Yep. Going, selling it to the more traditional outlet, traditional customer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, too, that's one of the reasons we don't do farmer's markets anymore is because it's a great incubator, especially when you're small. Get mm-hmm. direct to consumer. Um, I don't want to step on those toes. Uh, it's a lot of work. I don't envy that. We've done it before. I know what that's like. Um, so... You know, I can leverage my existing business model and help supply those stores, um, you know, seven days a week or, or, I mean, maybe six days a week. And people go to the farmer's markets the other day a week. That's awesome. That's a win-win for them and for me. Um, And then part of the business model that I've tried to do is, it's a Zig Ziglar quote, but you help people get what they want and you'll get what you want. It's, you know, God's blessings are there when you help people, give them advice, empower them, do what you can. Um, And so that's something that we've always tried to do is, um, you know, to be honest with you, every single dairy processor in this county that has been started since 2000 has walked through these fields and looked at what we've done. And not saying that to toot our horn, but the reality is, is if we can help them, you know, uh, not have a recall or, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe a piece of equipment that I don't use, I can sell them or give them. That's super cool. And, and it's really, it's helped us in the years past having those relationships. Um, so anyway, that's, um, you know, that's part of it. Just empower people and then sell the market what they want. What's, what was the hardest time? Was it that time with the... Uh the raw milk stuff, the problems, what, what's been the biggest challenge you've faced? There's been seasons. Um, that was absolutely one. That's probably the most stress that any of us have ever been in the family and in the business. Um, there's been other seasons trying to figure out transition, trying to figure out stuff. And there's been some really hard seasons within that as well. Um, relationship especially working with family it's like a muscle and i mean there's been times i was ready to leave this place and kick rocks down the road right (laughs) Um, and to be honest with you i'm so glad i exercised that muscle and that grace for each other and my parents had grace for me Um, this season has been awesome i just had lunch with my dad and he was encouraging it's so cool to see right Mm. but unless we got through the hardship and exercised those muscles and tore some stuff apart and mm. let it healed back together stronger. We wouldn't have made it. So I'm so glad we made it. Would you tell other people to do it? I know some people seem, seems like they can do it. Other families, yeah. you know, if you talk about that family dynamic, doing business, doing work with family, yeah. is so hard. Man, I, I would say do it, but understand that if you're not in it for the long haul, I mean, if you're going to do it, I, as dumb as it sounds, I would write a contract together and say, this is going to completely suck. Let's all sign here and frame it so we look at it and remember <laughs> that's, you know, in those hardships and those times. Yeah. You know, and so I I won't poo-poo on anybody's dreams, like go for it, but understand it's going to be, I guarantee it, it's going to be harder than you think it is. It's going to cost more money than you think it is. You're going to make a lot of stupid mistakes. It's going to cost a lot of hardship in the family and cost a lot of money, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but do it, you know, do it. This isn't, I mean, this is truly the American dream. We joked about that while you were setting up today. The American dream is you got a bunch of crazy people like you and I sitting out here uh, <laughs> doing a job or chasing our dream or, you know, something. 
and you got to be slightly crazy to do it. So America. (laughs) Well, thank you for doing it and making it happen and producing not only delicious, but sustainable and healthy food. I, I have always been impressed by you folks and you know, people recently, yeah, you put a few feelers out on social media. Who should I have? And multiple people. Yeah. And even people, while I, I think when I was interviewing Ashton, I think we said on, on the episode, it was like, yeah, we got to have David on. Yeah. yeah. And so we've done it. And, and it's really cool to hear that whole story that you have. Oh, thank you. And honestly, it does mean a lot. I mean, the, the, the support, the local support's been great. Um, I, get, I get probably as many love letters from people as I do as hate mail. <laughs> Which is, I mean, truly, like, that is amazing, you know. I Hopefully it's love letters for your product. Yeah, I mean, Otherwise. Julie and my wife, you watch out. No, it's kidding. Um, no, but legitimately, yeah, we get probably as many love letters for our products and for, you know, just social content, trying to educate, do stuff like that, as we do as, you know, mistakes in food and or in business. And that in itself is a huge deal to me, right? I mean. Especially in our culture where people are so quick to jump on people with I'm anger gu- and hate. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. How how easy is it just to sit down and just blast off a, a message or an email that says, you screwed up X, Y, Z? Yeah. Well, I probably do that 10 to 1 compared to, <laughs> you know. And yeah. so now I've gotten to the point where it's like, hey, you know what? If I like something, I'm going to go, I'm going to pop my head in the kitchen at the restaurant and say thank you to the chefs or the server. Um, and I don't say that to toot my horn. I've been on the receiving end of that. I, I say that just to encourage people that, you know what? Positivity goes a heck of a lot longer way than just being a negative Nancy all the time. Sorry to everybody named Nancy. I apologize. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, they've probably dealt with it before. Yeah, I tell you. Yeah. Well, thank you again for having me out here and uh, sharing your whole story with us. My pleasure. We've got to get out of here. It's getting hot. It's supposed to be like 85 today. <laughs> This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 